Welcome back to the Neighbour Food Podcast. We are your hosts, Jolene and Jack, and today's episode is all about fond food memories and Irish bakes with none other than Graham Hertrick, aka the Cupcake Bloke. Graham takes us on a nostalgic journey exploring the power of food memories and the influence that they have had on his life. And this has been from growing up in a butcher shop to joining the priesthood, working with Ireland's top chefs, cooking with his grannies, and Graham's journey is filled with fascinating stories that have led him to write his very first book, Bake, traditional Irish baking with modern twists. In this chat, we talk about the history of Irish baking, including the early forms of bread baking, the impact of soda on the Irish kitchen, and the traditional folklore stories and fables, such as don't forget to put a cross in the top of your soda loaf to let the fairies out. Graham has travelled extensively and with so much cultural diversity in Ireland's kitchen today, Graham brings an expertise to blending flavours and incorporating these international influences into his culinary creations. And of course, we're going to get some baking tips and advice from Graham that even the most novice of bakers will appreciate. So without further ado, let's dive into the world of flavours, food memories and traditional Irish baking with that modern twist. Here is Graham Hertrick. Um, Great. So, Graham, for those of uh, those of us who don't know you so well, and I actually only just bumped into you down in Ballymaloo now, Preston Jensen had actually said that we should get in touch. So then it was like by just a fate accidental um, encounter. I was like, this is the guy I meant to get in touch with. <laughs> and here he is. And I'm going to take his photo. In the middle of a rain speed. And then we met and it was all exciting. Um, so for those of you who don't know, those of us who don't know you properly would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners so my name is graham hertridge aka the cupcake bloke mm-hmm. um which most is actually funny most people only know me as graham hertridge in the last kind of year okay. the amount of people that that's the bloke that's the bloke there's the cupcake man or the cupcake whatever um it's only since the book came out that i really had the confidence to stand out as graham hertridge and come out from behind the cupcake bloke but yeah i'm the cut graham the cupcake bloke um i set up my bakery 10 years ago and i opened my first shop in rialto uh four years ago nice yeah just before you joined us on the podcast you were up at two o'clock in the morning baking is that a typical day for you um, no, that was a it's slightly earlier start. Normally, normally I'm in at three o'clock, so okay. <laughs> it was a little bit um, earlier than normal. But yeah, it kind of it depending on the day of the week, I kind of go in between two and four most days. Yeah. Wow. And how many days a week is your is your bakery open? I work six days a week. Everybody else works five days a week, but I'm self-employed. I work six days a week. Um, we keep the shop closed on a Monday, which guarantees me a Sunday off. Good man. So nice. Dedicated. Yeah dedicated and you're after writing a book yes i did yeah so i presume it's about baking is it so the, it was my first book it was called bake and the kind of tagline is traditional irish baking and modern twists which yeah. kind of encapsulates what i have become in the last couple of years this baker who i really kind of identified with what I love and that my love of traditional irish baking and um, ever since opening the shop i've really discovered that I don't want to ponder to other trends or what other people expect me to have in my shop. I've decided to do with the shop what I love. Mm. So that whether it be the way the shop is decorated or what we sell in the shop or whatever flavors I bring out, it's all stuff that I love and stuff that makes me happy. Um, and that's really important to me. And my love of traditional Irish baking has been there since a very, very young age. Mm. And Let's talk about that maybe. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was going to say I'd love to hear about that kind of love of traditional baking. What what is that kind of connection to the past that you have? Is it because of the people that were surrounded you, or, or how did you come it, to this it, point? It, it is the people that surrounded me. It is, and I will be honest, it is the women that I grew up with in my life. Um, my very first memory of baking is, um, and oh my god, um, Joe this or Joe the photographer and order the stylist of the book recreated that image that I had in my head in a photograph in the book, and it was sitting at a table with my granny in her house in Carlo, and she was weighing out the fruit into this like a real classic maize and cash bowl, um, and bringing her fruit and her mixed peel, and she was explaining what she was doing as she went along and pouring in the tea. And I can still hear her saying that the tea shouldn't be hot and not too cold. It's just lukewarm. And that's the tea going in. And she explained what she was doing. And I I always remember the excitement of wanting, like, and she's like, now we have to wait till tomorrow. Like, what? (laughs) I have to wait till tomorrow for this, whatever we're baking. And then the following day, going through the rest of the process with her. Um, And I absolutely, that was my very first memory. But then, over the last couple of years, as I said, as my confidence in myself has grown as a baker and my own identity is what I want to do. Um, all these other memories of people, particularly women in my life that were friends of my mum's or kind of my aunties and my other granny, what influences they had regarding particularly baking in my life really started to kind of come true to me. And I've, yeah, just really ran with that whole. But again, what I try to do... I, as a baker is I take these traditional items and modernize them. Mm. So that's something yeah. that I'm really passionate <clears throat> about. So I'm taking these traditions from the past, but I'm showing that they can be brought forward. I suppose much the same way as like the French croissant has been turned into cruffins and it's been turned into mm. all these other things. I'm looking at what I love and what's ours and bringing it forward a little bit. Yeah, I love that. And do you know what? I actually loved that tribute that you had at the beginning of the book to all those influential women um, that are in your life. I thought that was really beautiful. But clearly you've a bit of an entrepreneurial kind of streak in your DNA, I'd say, because you grew up in a family business, did you? Yeah, my um, my dad was a butcher, pork butcher, specifically. Okay. Um, and I'm from a family of pork butchers. Like at one stage, I think there was about 20 Hertages pork butcher shops across Ireland. Um, like lots in the east and the west as well. Um, there's only two remaining now, and that is in Longford and in Galway. And they're still Yeah, where does the name with the name? Where does Hertridge come from? So it's a German name, and it goes back to my great, 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 great granddad, um, who moved to London first and then moved to Newry and at the same time he was friends with like the Heffernans and one of the other kind of famous sausage families that came at that time as well um Oldhausen or one of them like they were all kind of they came from Stuttgart just outside of Germany or just mm. just outside of Stuttgart in Germany um and they all kind of moved at the same time and I said my my great 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 grandfather ended up in Newry and then from there he my grandfather moved to Na- my great grandfather moved to Nace where he had seven sons um, and one daughter and they spread across Ireland and all of them opened up their own pork butcher shops across oh Ireland. My God. Wow. So do you know a good recipe for sausages? 
Um, my dad knows it. Oh, it's actually like <laughs> still top secret. It, 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 is still, it is still his recipe. Um, like we used to weigh the seasonings and stuff like that, yeah. but um, I've I've still yet to have a sausage that is as good as my dad's sausage. Just, oh yeah, go away. That is <clears throat> absolutely gas. Like, and you weren't you weren't tempted into the pork business. Um, do you know what it was at that time like so we're talking 1996 I done my leave and certain went to college and it was at that time where supermarkets like were just taking over like I remember in my own hometown of Atai there must have been about seven or eight butchers in the shop in the town and there were at that stage they were all closing because the supermarkets were supermarket counter was where everybody was going people were stop, stopping using butchers mm. Um, I have a funny feeling it, Oh, Graham, your microphone's turned off. Graham, sorry. you're... Oh, there you go. Gotcha. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so you went from, I have a funny feeling. Yeah, I have a funny feeling. If I had been about five or six years older, um, I probably would have went into the family business. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have loved to have gone into it. Like, I went to college trained to be a chef. Um, mm -hmm. And I would have loved to have gone into the butchery side of it from a chef's point of view, where you, yeah. you can see what's happening now with butcher shops and they are... Um, turning into these like gourmet food parlors, really. Do you yeah, know, ready, I mean? ready to cook, kind of ready to cook stuff, and also like the ingredients that they have there, and like bringing in other elements and new cuts and stuff like that. So it is a fascinating world now, but at the at the time, I was just too young to do it. Mm. Um, and kind of, mm. I think my dad had his mind made up that the shop was going at that stage. It had been struggling. Mm. And do you think like baking in a way is kind of more of a an artistic expression perhaps than um something like a butcher shop then? Sorry, can you repeat that? Sorry. So would you think that like baking and making cakes and kind of coming up with recipes is probably more of a creative expression of who you are rather than cutting meat or uh you know preparing meat in a butcher shop? Would that be maybe why you went down that way? I kind of feel you're a bit of a creative soul at heart. Like the, my my bakery side of things is only in the last ten years. So mm. um, so when I left, when I I went to catering college in Waterford, um, and from there I went to I was working in a lot of very very high end restaurants. Um, I was in Mount Julia just before they got their first Michelin star. Um, I had been doing stages in Chapter One, the Commons, um, a, a Peacock Alley back in the day, like that type of places where I was working, mm. um, and I absolutely loved it. Then I gave it all up, and I don't know if you've read this in the book, but I gave it all up to train to be a priest. I did read that. Yeah. I was like, wow, what an impact <laughs> did that have on your life? <laughs> um, a, a very good one, a very, very okay. good one. Um, so I, yeah, left it all behind to go and train to be a priest. It was something that was always in the kind of back of my mind. Um, and I'd done that. I, did, I gave it two years of my life, and I absolutely loved it. Mm. Um, but it just wasn't for me. The, mm. the celibate life was not like that was going to work for me long term. Um, and I just, I wasn't comfortable with it any longer. So I, I left. But again, I do not regret it. I loved every minute of it. Um, so can I ask you one thing about that? Yeah. What age were you when you decided to train? To I was 21 when I joined. Ah, okay, okay. And would that be kind of a normal age that people would join? Yeah, like I guess you so. are nowadays you are encouraged if you did want to join the priest that you go to college first so and get some other uh, sort yeah, of okay. life experience yeah. um and other some sort of um other career. Now there is people who it is for them and they know from a very young age, but the majority of people would be encouraged nowadays to pursue other careers first and live a little bit, get a little bit older before joining uh, religious life or priesthood, yeah. That's my main question. I always wonder because all, <laughs> all priests are kind of old, you know, obviously they're not as young priests too, but I was like, is there any 20, 
Are there 22-year-old priests running parishes around the country that I haven't met? No, mentioned? no, no. And it is a long, like, it's 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 seven years of study. Like, yeah, it's two okay, years yeah. of philosophy and, se- and five years of um, theology. So it's a long process to become a priest. But yeah, no, it, it wasn't for me. Um, and when I left it, I just knew I didn't want to go back into that kind of the crazy hours of Michelin starred restaurants and working mm. like 60, 70, 80 hours a week. It wasn't for me. I didn't want to do that. So at the time, I got a job with Guilin. Can I just um, ask a question there? It might yeah. be a curveball, but I think since you're a baker and one time uh, semi or training priest, the communion bread, what's your thoughts on it? <laughs> it's wafers, paper. Like it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, um, I've no real thoughts on this phone. I've never really given it much time or anything like that. Um, it's just an unleavened bread and it's, yeah, it's fairly Is standard. It, all right. A, any opportunity for improvement in that or like <laughs> a consultancy, a consultancy with the Catholic church on the communion bread could be a good move. <laughs> no, I definitely haven't given that one much thought. I don't think there's, and I suppose if you see church numbers and gores now, I don't think there's much of a, a an opportunity there anymore either, really. Okay, maybe that's right. the problem. Sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going there, Graham. <laughs> um, yeah, so I got a job with Gwailin. Um They had they used to have like that's the Irish speaking uh, company promoting the Irish language, and they had a little coffee shop on Dawson Street called 3D. And I always remember going in for the interview there. It was somebody who recommended me for the job? And I went in and I was doing this interview. And then halfway through the interview, the person said to me, you know, this job is Oscuelga. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, no, this is an Irish speaking job you're applying for. The interview was in English. Go away. And um, nice. I was like, no, I said, OK, sorry about that. But there must have been something that I liked. And they asked me to join their team there. So I actually was in uh, 3D for about four years, ended up being banished or the manager of the shop, mm-hmm. uh, of the coffee shop. It, it, again, was ahead of its time. I was asked to use as much Irish produce as possible, Irish suppliers. But again, this is going back over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I'd lo- again, another job that I'd love to be doing now because what you could do with it compared to 20 years ago. Mm. Like, it was almost impossible to find Irish brie and things like that 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, or very, very hard to come across it. But yeah, so I was working for them. I then got headhunted to go for to a chain of coffee shops um, and to open one of their units, which, I, which was out in Blanchardstown. I was out in Blanchardstown for about three weeks and the managing director of the company said, that's it, you have too many ideas. And I was brought in to run their central kitchens. Uh, so that was up in Inchicore. And we had a central kitchen um, where we produced all the food for like this chain of coffee shops. Um, and as part of that, I set up a, helped to set up a cupcake part of the business. There was a bakery there and I helped do product development and set up the bakery as part of that. Um, roll on to 2012, I got made redundant from that company um, and I decided I took a risk and I said like I think I'll open my own bakery I had been doing a lot more of the baking and I had a bit of a following on Facebook at the time for my bakery account um, it was only cakes for family and friends that type of thing and yeah so I decided to take a risk set up my own bakery doing things in exactly the same way as I was doing them for this chain of coffee shops through central distribution but picking 
in um, individuals and kind of private coffee shops around the city. So I could go to like Clement and Pico and Cloud Picker and all these small places mm. with freshly baked products every day because I had a number of shops to go to every day. And that's where the whole business was built from. That idea of using central distribution and central baking doing small quantities of lots of different things and be able to provide smaller independent coffee shops on a daily basis. That's amazing. What yeah. a lovely yeah. synopsis of how your career has been shaped and what amazing <laughs> influences from so many different places. So Yeah, and then and, and then there is like, between the pre-Southern 3D, there was that kind of time when I went to Morocco and ended up spending a couple of weeks there, really trying to kind of gather what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And um, I went for a week's holiday and ended up spend, spending for four weeks um, out there and working as a sheep herd for like, or a goat herd for two weeks up in the Atlas Mountains and stuff. So like lots of little things like that have really influenced where I have come to today, yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing. I would love to get back into the Irish side of the baking. Yeah. And I love that you were working um in, in the Gwailin. Do you actually speak Irish now? Have you got a good grasp of the language? No, no, no. My 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 language at the time, my Irish at the time was like if you came in and you wanted to order a cup of coffee or you wanted to um order food my food irish was very very good um i could take money i could just do the basics that's all okay. it was mm -hmm. i needed to just learn the basics yeah. um i'm sure that's all gone so quickly again but i would it's one of these things when i have time i'd love to try and kind of join a conversational group or it's definitely a language that like i love the language and i'd love to start learning it a bit more yeah yeah do you have any favorite irish baking words that you know off the top of your head at this point well, I do like they actually for a long time, the working title of my book, Bake, was Bacall, which ah. is the Irish. The We were going to call it the Irish for baking, which is Bacall. Yeah. Um, mm. But we just thought it was a little bit too. It's not one of the Irish words like, say, Bloster or something like that. That's easy to pronounce. Mm. There's fathers and stuff. And we just thought it was a little bit too hard for people to pronounce. Too, so too, too we stuck there. with Bake. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about the book, because. When I picked up the book, I was immediately captivated by the fact that it was Irish baking with this kind of modern twist. And one of the things that drew me in was that lovely kind of ch uh, chapter, a cu couple of um, pages at the start that was written by Ellie Dunworth, all about the history of Irish baking. And I was fascinated by this. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your understanding of the history of Irish baking and like what inspired you to delve into that side of yeah. it? So when I decided to write the book, I'm going to use air quotes here for something okay. now. So this is a podcast. I wanted a book, I wanted a book on <laughs> traditional, and I'm putting traditional in air quotes there. Traditional Irish baking. Traditional, it's what I perceive as being traditional. It's not okay. everybody's cup of tea. Like the amount of people that would like have said to me, like, but jam bonds aren't traditional Irish baking. But to me, they are. So like a lot of the bakes in it are what I perceive to be traditional or what were there as people were giving gifts as we were growing up or you know that's kind of your mom's friend that used to always come with a certain bake to me that is what were they're traditional to me so it was very important to me to get somebody else to write about traditional Irish baking somebody who had a better understanding of the history of Irish baking so that's why I've known Ali for a good few years now um, and I just knew that she would be the person that kind of capture what it is about traditional Irish baking that is so important in our hearts and what we all love about it. Like where there's so many little folklore and kind of things about like the, the cross and the top of the soda bread, like to let the fairies out. And mm. these are only little folklore things. We all know it's there to help the bread cook and rise and things like that. 
But it's these little stories that she's found about where names come from and reasons we do things is just fascinating. Like, mm. I love uh, one of the ones I love is about. Um, so in a kerny, I what I call kerny cake is um, a fruit soda bread, um, mm. and one of the names she came across was called railway cake, okay. and that's because what the story is that every now and again, like a railway station, you might get a current in your bread. So they're not, there's a lot, a lot in it, or just every now and again, like the stops along a railway track. So that seemingly is where the railway cake comes from, yeah. And what were the early forms of bread baking in Ireland? What, what were they like, do you know? So, like, traditional, like, a lot of breads would have been very oat-based, mm-hmm. um, which is actually quite funny, because one of my most popular breads that I make for the shop is just a porridge bread. Like it's literally made with porridge, oats um, and yogurt. And we put in some pumpkin seeds and a leg to bind it. And it's simple as that. Like the real, very, very, a lot of people would think it's a very new thing, but it's one of the most traditional types of bread you can make. Just literally oats would have been mixed with a liquid and formed into a cake that cooked over an open fire. And as simple as that. But um, yeah, so that's and, where it kind of would have started from. And then wheat would have came in and the buttermilk would have been given a rise and all that. Yeah. And bread soda, like, I mean, soda bread to me is kind of like the ultimate traditional Irish bread, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. I just, I, I love making, we, I made a decision a couple of years ago as well that I wasn't going to use yeast in my kitchen. I wasn't doing yeast breads um, because, oops, oops. sorry, sorry, Bone sorry. Bell. Uh, slight intermission there in the podcast that's okay we're back i'm sorry um i've actually i'm really like one of these sound pods so i am um in the enterprise center here i was um, was just kind of thinking to myself god this is the first time we've been on zoom and the sound has been really good and i'm listening with like really good headphones so this is amazing (laughs) yeah um so yeah sorry where were we there yes we were talking about uh about bread soda and how you weren't going to use you I, I, yeah, I made this decision because I wanted to focus on traditional Irish baking. There's not many traditional Irish cheese spreads out there. So I decided I was sticking with soda Um, do my classics. So I have my cedar soda bread, my Guinness and treacle. We do a kerny cake, but then look at the more modern versions and what I can do with them to bring them forward. Um, so that's where like our rye, ale and honey bread come from. Like it's also soda bread, but it's rye, um, ale and honey. We do like last week, we had a chorizo roast pepper and smoked paprika soda bread. Um, I suppose everybody just now knows me for that photo on the cover of the book, mm. which is this bright yellow punch purin soda bread. Mm. Um, and it is just so... It's identified as a soda bread, but it's just, you look at the book and you're like, oh, it's a soda bread. But you're like, what is it about it that is so different? And it's just, I just love that photo. It's stunning. Yeah, it is stunning. Do you know how come soda became such a stable part of our kitchen? Well, it's so quick and easy and you could cook it over fire. Yeah. And that, and that, I think that's like, again, I don't know a huge amount about the history of it. Um, I just know that I love cooking it and eating it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I think it was one of these things. It could be cooked easily over an open fire um, with the kind of your, your cast iron pot brought in and you people could control the heat and it quite easy. It cooked quite quickly. You didn't have to be proving it for hours and all that sort of thing. And it was just easy to cook over an open fire. Yeah, perfect. And what about like different regions around the country? Do they have different specialities? 
Um, well, what I found was more, more to do with names. Okay. Like that would say like the Kearney cake um, or in kind of Cork it's called Spanish dog, um, railway cake more over in the West. But then you had things like, one of the things I came, what I grew up with was called um, a nice loaf, where it's like, it is a, a, an enriched yeast loaf um, with icing on top, a little, little bit of mixed peel inside. But I found so many names for that all over the country, like an ice duck, um and then there was like a, a kearney ice and all these different so i found different names for different products but everybody ultimately had the same kind of baked good if that makes sense gotcha. <clears throat> fascinating graham i want to ask you because i ran a food business for eight years yeah um, and i know how diverse it is what's your favorite part because it seems to me like you were fantastic in front of house and then now it seems like all your energy is in the kitchen. Where do you see yourself normally? Where do you normally put yourself? I am so lucky to have the most supportive husband in the world who he looks after everything else to do with the business and he just allows me to be the creative. Okay. Um, and that's what I absolutely love, having time to just be creative, come up with new products. And like when I... I love doing front of house when I have something that I'm really passionate about and, and love putting out there. Um, but yeah, no, Dahi, he looks after like, you name it. If he was here, he'd have that tech, tech problems that we had earlier on. He would have that yeah. sorted out. Um, he would have, um, he would have, he does the banking, he does the accounts, he does the payroll, he does the HR, he does absolutely everything. And I just get, I have the most amazing life where I just get to be creative and, play with traditional Irish baking and come up with new ideas kind of constantly. God. I love it. We all need a dahi in our lives. <laughs> well, we all need a dahi in our lives and I'm looking up that I, I have one. I have one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's magnificent. Um, so you were telling us about spending time like in Morocco and I guess that's probably influenced a lot of kind of your international focus that we have like in, in the cuisine and and like, have you done other travels as well? Or, or how did you come to get this kind of like cultural, global diversity that we see in your cooking today? I'm like, yes, I'm lucky enough that I have been able to travel quite a bit. Um, good few years ago, um, I used to do a lot of sponsored walks for the Irish Wheelchair Association, which you'd raise a good few grand for and then you go off on these amazing sponsored walks around the world. And like with them, I was lucky enough to spend time in Cuba and Vietnam, Cambodia, Egypt, um, didn't get to go into Brazil one, unfortunately, but um, yeah, no. So like they were amazing opportunities to get traveling and I do have a travel bug. I love particularly North African, Middle Eastern um, culture and flavors and all that. So, but then, and I suppose this is where in the other, the other piece of the book that I brought somebody in to help with was these laugh, the laughing's piece about where all of these modern influences are coming into Ireland. Mm. And I suppose my love of travel, if I have a bit of it, an itch to go traveling for me, it nowadays is like, oh, I'll just nip into town and go to one of the like foreign spice shops and spend an hour walking up and down the aisle, looking at different products. Like, what is this? How can I use it? Um, and I, even only yesterday, I was in one of my favorite shops is Asian Market on Mary Street here in Dublin. And it's just, it's like every section is like they have a an Indonesian section and a Middle Eastern mm -hmm. section and a, um, a Chinese section. And I just love walking around, picking up products, 
and like how can I use this what and that's where the actually again the bread on the front of the book that's where that came from I was in there one day and I came across this whole spice blend called Punch Purin and then I go and this is what I do I go home when I find a product like that and I will research the living daylights out of it and figure out how to use it what the flavors are how they use it and what other foods come from that region how does it blend how does it all marry together um, and it's like the, in the book that punch purin bread is served with a keema curry mm. and this is where the other thing comes from like I use when I f- go out to eat myself and I might find an idea so that recipe is like a tribute to the goat and curry or the goat and toast from Pickle Restaurant from Sunil's Restaurant and that's where the idea is of like Oh yeah, let's do a let's do an Irish version of it, which is like a keema curry with the the soda bread toasted, um, and that's where the idea came from. From that, so I I find kind of ideas and inspirations basically everywhere, mm. um, whether it be traveling or just in restaurants here in Ireland or walking into shops here in Ireland and just picking up ingredients, going okay, how can I use it? How how can I take this amazing product, something very traditional from another country, and mix it with our tradition and bring something forward? Yeah, I think there's been an amazing growth in all those kind of cultural, diverse restaurants and flavors that are just on our doorstep. We're so lucky not to just travel, but to have them at home. Like, but the, uh, and even like a D mentions it in the book. Look at all mm. of our Michelin starred chefs in this country. We have people from Turkey, Finland, England. Like, it's all these influences are coming into Ireland. We are such in such a unique position where we can get to try all these foods. I was only last week. I was in um, the Mary Street Mall, which is like, or sorry, the um, Moor Street Mall, which is like a little underground food centre off uh, Moor Street. It's top of Moor Street, underneath Little there, and. There's a Bengali restaurant. It was a Romanian restaurant. There was like all these restaurants down there serving food. And I'm like, I was only talking to D-Laff and I was like, we need to go in and we need to spend a bit of time in there eating in all these little tiny little restaurants that are serving traditional foods to different countries. It's amazing. Yeah. And um, how do you still like keep um, an appreciation on, like, you know, the the cultural importance of those original place like I'm talking about kind of cultural appropriation there how, how do we keep that intact while we're adapting recipes from different cultures and blending them together it's it's a respect um like I do have like let's put it like this I'm not going to like you see so many people doing Tex-Mex with Cajun spices and you're like what are you at like yeah. it's it, that's like to me that is wrong where what I'm trying to do is take I will take somebody's flavors or I will I will honor them in the best way I possibly can if that makes sense mm-hmm. um and again that's why I did bring Dee in to help me with that part because from her podcast it's really important uh, to honor traditions and she was like she helped me go through the recipes i'm like i don't want to offend anybody she was like no because you're not you're taking traditional ingredients from other countries and just honoring it in an irish way and that's the big difference once if you were being flippant with somebody else's ingredients or products and just doing it for the sake of doing it or just adding miso into a bread just because you need to have a miso bread that's mm-hmm. wrong but if you if it's enhancing and you're giving it um, time and you're giving it respect, I think that's very, very important. That's mm. cool. Yeah, it's a tough topic. We've actually talked about it. We've touched on it with quite a few people. And it's um, it's I think it's going to be a bigger conversation over the next 
four or five or six years that's going to happen around food because it's it's such a personal thing. It, it, it is. And like, it can trigger like, somebody's emotional reaction to something, you know? Yeah. Like for me, for me, I'm not going to take, um, uh, say an Indian bread recipe and try and adapt that to be an Irish product. I will take in Indian flavors and products like that and make them into, um, add them to enhance my products. That's the way I try to do it. Um, but it is, it's a, it is a fascinating, um, world and it's it is a fascinating um situation that we're in and place where we're in where all these things are merging and well I'd, I'd hate to see it where everything starts to become the same yeah nationalists <laughs> um, we have, and we have this weird mix of indian chinese food that everybody eats and that's it like oh, it would be a horrible place to live <laughs> come here for people who have picked up the book and they're yeah. beginners in the whole world of bacon have you any tips for total plebs when it comes to bacon? The, the one thing I've tried to do with the book is like make it so it's suitable for every single person that wants to bake. Um, there's a couple of little things like read your recipes. That's the, probably the biggest tip that I can give to anybody is read a recipe from start to finish before you start. The amount of people that will read a recipe and kind of like go, oh yeah, I have all that there, I'll start. And then they realize they need to marinate something for 24 hours or it's they actually get to the point where they need to kind of have a tin and they're like, oops, I haven't got that. Or you're almost finished and you haven't got that final ingredient. So yeah, get everything out, read the recipe, make sure everything, and the really boring part, but weigh everything out beforehand and have it ready. I feel that is really important. Um, Learn from your mistakes. Like, believe you me, I have messed up plenty of bakes. Um, cakes don't rise. Cakes don't cook. Cakes, do you know what I mean? It, it is a science. Baking is a science. Um, and just take your time. Have fun with it. And try not to beat yourself up too bad if it just goes wrong. Because <laughs> baking is fun. It is fun. It is really fun. And that's, again, another thing that I was trying to show in the book is like, I grew up with bakers around me and I and it, it it left an impression on my heart of fun times, comfort, warmth, um, just good memories of having ba- baking and eating the bakes with people. Yeah. And I say it in the book that if you have time, bake with a kid, because in 30 or 40 years time, they might be writing the book and thanking you for bringing baking into their lives the way I was thanking all these women for bringing baking into my life. And I just think Mm. if you have a few minutes and I'll give you one really, really simple recipe Mm. just for buns, good old classic buns. All you need are four ingredients, butter, eggs, sugar, and flour, self-raising flour. And go buy your eggs. If you have two eggs, weigh them into a bowl and they would should weigh about 100, 110 grams. Then put in the same quantity of butter, sugar, and flour, and then just mix it all together. And that's your simple bun recipe. Pop them into your bun liners, into your fairy cakes or your bun sizes or whatever tins you want. Bake them 18, 20 minutes. And then that's it. You have a bun. Bit of jam on top. Dip them in the coconut like we had years ago, the proper way. And like that's just so much fun. So quick, so easy. And yeah, anybody can do it. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I actually remember like making scones with my granny. 
and we made like a big round of scone that she'd cut into wedges a bit yeah. like a, a bit like a cake and um yeah i it's it's definitely about sharing memories and like they're all really good nostalgic pieces that when you kind of taste that again you're tasting a memory and you're remembering that person but so. that is you you yeah. are taste you are tasting memories and them memories food memories are so powerful like mm. they can really just hit a spot where and they kind of hit you from nowhere it's like it smells and ba- and tastes like they memories when they come back they come back full force and it's like wow that is really and you just can put yourself in a time in a place and sometimes for the worst like like i recently had something to eat that it used to be made by somebody that was so that i love so much who had passed away and it was it really hit me that like how much i missed that person Mm. Um, because the product that I was, it was a, it was a fruit cake, and it was just, it made me realize how much I missed that person in my life because they're gone now. Mm. Um, and it's just, I think it's important to give time to that, mm. and I think we can all appreciate food a bit more when we can give it some time to appreciate the flavors, tastes, memories, and it's. I don't think I could ever live in a world where I just need to eat to survive till the next meal and just for the sake of it, that's definitely not me um, because I attribute so much more to food than just nourishment. Mm. I think that's important. Do you guys cook at home? Um, Yeah, we do actually. Um, At the moment, we're actually having very good meals at home because I'm actually currently writing book number two. Um, (laughs) So... Um, yeah, so lots of um, nice meals at home at the moment. Um, but yeah, no, I love I love spending time in the kitchen at home. It's a very different space for me. Um, but again, I suffer from the same as everybody else. I have a rep- at the moment it's different, but normally a repertoire of about twenty dishes that kind of go in rotation, <laughs> um, and it can be hard to get out of that, especially when you're up early working. And but with the book that I'm bringing out, it's trying to find recipes that work for people on an everyday basis so yeah it's very important yeah is it going to be about baking or is it about other uh, let's go let's go are we going to tell us what it's about (laughs) let's just go other at the moment i can't say too much more about it um (laughs) so that kind of fascinates me graham because i i have heard so many different people say that you're either one or the other you know, yeah. like one one is is tasting and changing and moving and the recipe is never <clears throat> what it should be. The recipe is only a guide cooking savory, obviously, while baking is absolute science. And if you try and mess with that and fool around, you know, you're never going to get there. I personally relate a little bit more with the cooking a dish part of it. And I struggle with the discipline of baking. Yeah. One of the things in bake that I've tried to get across as well is that like if you are an advanced baker, you know you would have the a batter good, should feel yeah, like and... yeah, you 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 will have a good feel. And like what I try to show in bake as well is for, for the more advanced person or the more advanced baker is don't be frightened to use flavor. Flavor mm. is not going to upset your your bake too much. Mm. If your bake is asking for you to put in vanilla try lemon or try an orange zest do you know what i mean you can play around with certain things like that and as you get better as at being a baker 
you can start playing a bit more. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of these things. Like after baking for a while, you will know what things should feel like, how the consistency should look. Mm. And one of the most important, actually, another bit of advice as well is one of the most important things is get to know your oven as a baker. Mm. Know your hot spots in your oven. And I all, I always suggest use baking a tray of cupcakes for this or bake a tray of buns. Put it in the middle shelf of the oven because you will see straight away if there's a hot spot in your oven because like the, the bun in that corner over there might be a little bit darker than the oh, ones yeah. at the front and it's a great way to actually figure out if there's a hot spot in your oven or is the temperature nice and even is yeah. is the fan blowing too much one direction and things like that so baking is one of these things and you can baking can become like cooking for that sense if you just practice at it and get to know your basic recipes very good a tactful bun rack <laughs> Come here. Tell us about uh, the the tea brack obsession. So, as uh, from my story earlier on, Granny Flynn teached me how to make tea brack. Mm -hmm. That is just as I said. It just warms every like I make about hundred bracks a week. Um, like down in Ballymaloe where we were recently, like I had three hundred bracks with me that weekend. Every single one made by hand, wrapped by hand. Um, and I just love it. And I've never fallen out of love with it. Like, if you told me tomorrow that I could never make a cupcake again, I'd probably go, oh, that's grand. Thanks very much. I had a great 10 years. The brand. <laughs> the brand is gone. <laughs> but, but if you told me tomorrow that I could never make a brack again, I'd be devastated. I would be absolutely devastated. To me, it is just, I just think brack is perfection. You have sweet but not too sweet, you get to put butter on it. Everything is yeah. better with butter um, and you get to slather butter on it. And I just, yeah, so, and like, it's where I suppose my love of taking the traditional and giving it a twist has come from as well. Mm. Um, like, how do I play around with Brax and how, what, like, I would spend hours talking tea with Darina in Clement and Pico on wheel. She'll kind of let me smell different teas and taste different teas and we'll, figure out like what can I do with that like recently I did one for um the Brack Club where I used um a, a Tom Kern's tea which is very vanilla based and we've done it with mm. apple and um oats and stuff for Patrick's Day um but yeah just being able to kind of find the different flavors and teas and just use them I love it I absolutely mm. love it and you do a subscription tea Brack yeah so I have a Brack Club um, we're actually we're not open for new members at the moment. It is fully, fully, sub Jesus. fully subscribed. It will be coming back in September for our second season of it. Um, yeah, and you can join up for six or three months. Um, at the end of the three months, you're given the option to join for the next three if you've really liked it. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, this time round, after the three months, nearly everybody resubscribed for the next three months, which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I just get to play with flavours. This is where, like, my real imagination comes out and I can kind of try different things. Um, because, again, it's, it's like what we were talking about earlier on. When you know the science of it, you can play with it. Like yeah. your fruit, your we normally soak the fruit in tea, but like I've done it for this in these brack clubs, I've soaked it in coffee, I've soaked it in prosecco, I've soaked it in different things where you can just you're just rehydrating fruit ultimately, yeah. um, and then you can add in different flavors. So yeah, I love just playing around with the different flavors of 
Yeah, the tea breaks are just. I got it. I had an almond and it was chocolate cocoa nibs in it. And oh, that's what I got off you. Pear, I was yeah. like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Yeah, that, <laughs> and was, it lasted... that was a really special one. That was really, really nice. Good, yeah, really good. So a lot of these recipes are in your book, right? So in the book, you will have, so in the whole brack section because it's the heart of the book because that is my heart of baking and my granny and all that yeah you have your traditional recipe and then and this again this is how the book works so you have your traditional recipe on one page and on the next page you have the modern version of it so in the book there it is a coffee peak and date and chocolate brack it's the modern mm. version of the brack um, and then the other part about that chapter is butter. My other granny, my granny Daisy, she couldn't cook to save her life, but everything got smothered in butter. And that's where my <laughs> love of butter comes from my granny Daisy, big time. Yeah. Oh, great. You know, I have to tell you about something, um, Graham, because I think you'll you'll like this. And I'm just quickly checking online for the name because I, I can't remember the name of it. But there is a restaurant in Turin in northern Italy. And it's in an incredibly old building and they have restored a dining room exactly as it was from 800 years ago. And there's a, a wall that's been removed and the other side of the dining room, which mirrors exactly the same shape, has been made modern. Oh, and wow. every single thing you get served there, you are served two small versions, the traditional version and the modern version on the same plate while you sit in a room that is the traditional version and the modern version wow that is that's amazing actually that sounds yeah. really cool yeah really, really i think cool. it's a one star michelin or maybe more i'm gonna find the name of it and send it on to you because it's been years since i actually knew about it but it's right in the center of turin yeah wow that sounds amazing yeah that's you see this is where now this is where i get ideas from i'm like how can i do this <laughs> yeah 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 i can see this coming up cupcake bloke part two <laughs> very good graham is there anything else that's uh that's happening in your life at the moment that we haven't talked about um lots of fun festivals coming up during the summer um yeah teaching lots of kids at kaleidoscope how to decorate cupcakes and then we've beyond the pale um yeah so like uh, what i'm really excited about this year is i'm kind of getting out of dublin um a lot of what i've done for the last 10 years has been very dublin focus so really taking the opportunity now with the book being out to kind of get out of Dublin and like you can get caught in a trap of Dublin you really can of like what's just happening here and kind of forget that there is a whole other country or the rest of the country is out there like I've recently opened a pop-up shop in my hometown of Atai mm -hmm. um, and we're there like we only open two days a week but it's lovely to be at home doing something um, and seeing the Hertridge name over a door shop in Atai again is actually really really nice um, and I'm kind of quite proud about that because it's lovely when people come in and say oh I remember when your father had the butcher shop and it's just actually really nice and actually where the shop is open um, is where I actually had my very first job ever in the oh. fruit and veg shop so um, so I've always look I've always been into food fruit and veg shops and everything but um, yeah so no there's lots of little things I said I'm in the middle of writing book number two um, very much looking forward to my holidays as well. and going to Morocco in August, which I will come home from this time. He's coming to make sure I go home. Don't end up <laughs> herding uh... goats up in the Atlas Mountains again. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to doing a little bit of traveling. And, yeah, like, I never thought three years ago that I would be 
an author. Like I suffer from very, very bad dyslexia. Um, and I never thought I would find joy in writing and joy in words. Let's put it like that. And it currently is making me so happy to be able to write and express myself through words, which, for, as I said, with somebody with dyslexia is it's kind of mind blowing that I get yeah, to do this as part of my life now. It's really, really amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Graham, how can people find out about you? So um, Instagram is probably the easiest way. We have a website coming soon. It'll be the Cupcake Bloke. But like the Cupcake Bloke on Instagram or Graham Hertridge on Instagram. Yeah. Spell that, share spell that complicated there. surname for us, will you? Hertridge, H-E-R-T-E-R-I-C-H. Cool. And um, on that one, I kind of share my purse like I will go to restaurants and um share kind of all that side of my personal life and what I'm doing there um and then I have a the, the work one is the cupcake blow where you'll see kind of all the important stuff <laughs> Graham can I ask you a question just before we go yes what is the fastest food in the world I can hear a pun come along but I don't know what it is <laughs> yeah, it's gone <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Graham. <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's Thank you, wonderful. Graham. <laughs> Thanks a million, guys. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bake is now available through Nine Bean Row Publishers and can be bought through their website or through anywhere that sells good books. The Bakery by the Cupcake Bloke, Graham's flagship spot where you can pop by six days a week and sample his creations, can be found on South Circular Road, Dublin. You've been listening to the Neighbour Food Podcast. We're Jack and Jolene, and thank you, and we see you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye.